Record always. Yes, just record. Just record. Just record. Okay, let me fix this a little bit better. Uh, yeah. Are you ready? I am ready. Oh, you're always ready. I was born ready. Welcome to the Road to Open Science podcast, your guide on everything open at Utrecht University and beyond. And today, we're going to be talking about what diversity and inclusion have to do with the open science movement. Yeah, what do they have to do together? Yeah. Very different, right? I think it boils down to the word open here, to be open to everybody and to appreciate everybody's contribution. And for that, you also need to do something about the culture you work in. Isn't that the way to link the the two together? I think that's the conceptual part, but I also see a structural or uh, organizational part to it because uh, a few years ago that started this movement towards more diversity and inclusion at university, it was also a transformation which faced a lot of resistance, but also required a lot of changing, uh, you know, bad practices, yeah. which were very common practices. So I think they also, in terms of transformation, these two transformations can learn a lot from each other. And that would be my point of attention in discussing with our guest. So that's later on in our episode. We speak to Gunnar Dillaver. Um, but first we do the newsy news. Oh, the newsy news. Uh, we don't have to do it. You know, the most important news is that the newsletter of the Open Science at Utrecht University is out. Yes. So you can just follow the news by following the newsletter. And I think everybody at Utrecht University should receive this newsletter. That's You've been involved sweet. in making it, right? That's sweet of you to say. Yeah, we, we we actually got a couple of questions of people like, how can I stay updated? And then, of course, I always say, you listen to the Road to Open Science podcast. <laughs> but not everybody is a podcast aficionado. So we also have more of a, a paper slash pixel version of it. Uh, and we have a monthly open science newsletter coming out from the open science program. I think we're on version number three or four edition. And uh, it's open to everyone. So even if you don't work at Utrecht University, but you're interested because you work at a different university somewhere in the Netherlands or abroad, uh, you're welcome to uh, to join and also send us stuff that's happening around your place because we like to have a little part of what's happening at Utrecht, but also stuff we found in the media, for example. So everybody's invited to join and also collaborate. As as you know, Utrecht University is frontrunner and we know that all because it has been published in Nature Seco. <sighs> Let's be clear about this. It was not in Nature, the journal, but Nature has a website as well. And yes, they reached out because of the reward and recognition vision that was presented earlier this year. We had an episode about it, the second one of this year, together with Paul Bosley and Marike Adriaanse. And Paul was interviewed on uh, actually just a small part initially of the recognition and reward vision, which said something about, what is this again? A journal impact factor? (laughs) Yeah, you cannot call that anymore at Utrecht University grounds. No, at least you cannot use it to promote people on an individual basis. And why? Because that's what he says in this article, because it's a very bad measure to use for making these kind of decisions. And this is actually the policy of Utrecht University uh, starting 2022, but we're gradually moving towards there. Yeah, and there was a lot of reactions. I think it was really, really put Utrecht on the map. And many people looked, where is this Utrecht that has an Utrecht University which is doing what, you know, big... International yeah, Utrecht. universities. Who the hell is do. Utrecht? <laughs> is it Utrecht or Utrecht? Or? They don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, it really it, it made waves, as we say. This actually had impact. Of course, saying that you're not going to be using a journal impact factor in a magazine that's closely related to the journal in the world with like the second or third highest impact factor of all is bound to make some kind of a wave. But what did you think of the responses? Uh, I actually was surprised that it was so widespreadly positive. Uh, 
Uh, I also saw negative responses, but most of the time says, yeah, let, yes, this was past the time and it's so good that there is an example now that we can follow. I mean, DORA, which actually is the declaration already has been signed by many universities for many years, but to be so explicit that we are not going to do that from this time and instead we are going this and that, uh, it was, I think, very impressive for many people yeah. which were waiting for this message. Yeah, in, in a way, it's strange because I think in 2014, the universities of the Netherlands signed DORA and then two years ago, UTECH signed DORA. And actually, in both cases, you say that you're not going to be using these uh, like very bad impact factors in terms of their representability anymore. But it, apparently, it only lands on the fifth interview or something, this message. That's possible. But also, I think on the ground floor, I want to see where the hiring committees and the promotion committees exactly. actually pay attention to it and show that they are actually understood that the situation has changed. Or when are the new employees uh, which we hire at the university are faced with this change up front that, look, you're coming to university, which is a bit different from what you might be used to in your previous working place because of this. And because of all the changes we have, because we know it's different, it's changed towards good, we think, but you must be aware of it. And I have not actually seen that yet. Well, I think uh, it has to be part of the process. So uh, maybe this is a good piece of advice. This should be in your introductory booklet when you uh, start a job at Utrecht University. Yeah, you should know what Utrecht University is yeah. famous about. Because I got all these gadgets, but... Uh, I <laughs> Give me the recognition and reward vision. And also around the Netherlands, other universities are moving. I saw some documents coming out of Delft and Eindhoven. Did you read them? Uh, that's true. I read the interview with the chair of the Eindhoven University. Yeah, from Bayern, so I'll put it in the show notes. Yes. But I also saw the, the nice, uh, again, position paper of Delft University with beautiful illustrations. I really recommend. It's a very nice read. I find a bit jealous also. <laughs> you were? Yeah, yeah, because, I mean, they were really uh, well-illustrated uh, changes, also very categorized. It's a very nice read. And I think at some point there would have to be a comparison between our position paper and their position paper. Yeah, well, on the national level, there are uh, like, like continuous discussion on this. And you, you just do start to see the differences between the flavors that universities uh, choose. But uh, I think one of the things uh, that, that helps you give you a little bit of an overview is this uh, paper written by Sharisma Heyakaya and Sander Bosch, who recently put an uh, article on Science Guide, where they compared on a very light touch the different emphasis of these programs and also the way that young uh, early career academics were involved in creating them. Maybe we should have her on the show. Yeah, that's an extremely good idea. We should ask her what they think. We'll drop her a line. Um, I have two other little things from the news. Okay. One, one is close at home, uh, but I think it's, it's really a good development. So from the university library for a while now, there have been these uh, group trainings on open science. It used to be an introduction and people sort of reached out and then they got a little training program on, on basically all things open and how to uh, open up your work. Uh, the, as a scientist they've created a professional course as well and they now have opened it up to everybody from Utrecht University through like a, 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 like an easy landing page so if you and your group are thinking maybe we should open up this data set or we really think we should be part of this preprint server uh, group within our field or maybe something completely different you can reach out and join these two courses Okay, so these are online courses or you can reserve a time? This is all, I think, uh, you have to uh, discuss with the university library okay. staff. But you can, uh, I will put it in the show notes where you can uh, actually connect with them. 
And also because we are reaching an international audience, we should look abroad sometimes as well. And this week, it was really interesting to look not directly over the borders, but two borders over to the French Open Science Programme. Uh, ouvert la science mm-hmm. uh, you can read it in French if you want to polish up on your French but you can also hit that little translate button at the right end of your <laughs> Google Chrome yeah. so I did read up on this and uh, it is actually quite impressive okay tell they, me about it uh, there's money okay there's infrastructure and there's some actual good goals in there uh, funny enough no GIF <laughs> <laughs> also Recognition and rewards is mentioned specifically and uh, Diamond Open Access Publishing, so publishing through platforms rather than through journals, is uh, now officially enthused and accelerated by the French government. Uh, So sometimes when we think here in Utrecht or in the Netherlands, uh, like, are we crazy? Are we doing something that nobody's doing? Think again and polish up on your French. Yeah, okay. Uh, That's very interesting to know. I think we were warned that other countries are actually now accelerating and maybe also going in front in the first episode uh, that we talked about this. Uh, yeah, I'm very curious to read about it. I haven't seen it, but I'm very curious about it. And I think actually you should also have an eye on the Swiss program because they're Tell also me. going. Uh, I, I don't have it, but they have a very active uh, open science platform that also engaged in actual uh, university policies centrally. And they also will bring in change. They also they have a lot of money. I will look it up and put it in the show notes as well. Wow. We thought we had nothing for the news. <laughs> <laughs> Turns out there's okay. always a lot to talk about. Yes. Fantastic. But uh, to our guest. So who is our guest? Tell me about. Yeah. So I know her because she was my boss for a brief while in the beginning of this year. Gunnel uh, Dillever, she uh, was a program coordinator for the biomedical sciences. And in uh, over there in the master's courses, they have a minor called Life Sciences and Society, which brings together all kinds of perspectives on what the role of science in society is, in this case, especially life sciences. Um, and we, as a little, little group together with uh, my colleagues Frank, Luke and Martijn, gave a course on open science, of course. Eh? Uh, but there's also a, a big part in it on diversity, uh, on ethics, on research, uh, uh, history, philosophy of science. And um, actually, last week, we had our final symposium with the students, which was really nice to see people in real life again and have uh, a nice discussion with them afterwards. They presented their um, their projects they did together with outside parties. So they actually did three projects with the RIVM and one with the uh, young uh, academics from... Uh, what, do, what are you in again? Utrecht Young Academy. That, that one, yes. Okay. <laughs> On conspiracy theories, actually. Yes. Which were all uh, topics very closely related to where science and society intersect. So that's why I got to know her. And I read an article with her together with a colleague on diversity earlier this year in DIP. And I think those are the two main reasons why we invited Gunnel, right? Actually, I have to give a shout out to Brian McGonagall-Lai, mm-hmm. another uh, colleague of me in uh, uh, Utrecht Young Academy. She actually brought this uh, connection to our attention that uh, there is this connection between diversity and open science. It's very important to address this, not only on the conceptual level, but also on the how you actually activate this at the university. And I think there, Gunnel's framework, she has a framework, she actually won a grant at the university to execute this framework for bringing diversity uh, into the curriculum, but also into the population of the students. And I think her framework is very concrete. Was you know, for me, really uh, insightful to see that she puts all these elements, she has this triangle and puts all these elements together that you need 
actually you need to have training, but you also have to have an eye on the numbers and also you have to bring the capacity. And these are like a triangle. You need all the elements. And it's not that you should do one and forget about the others. Exactly, and yeah. I think this is very important uh, for the discussion on open science. And we're going to hear about this. Yes, in let's invite her into the studio. Welcome to the podcast, Gunil. We're very happy to have you here. And today we're going to talk about the relation between transition to open science at the university and diversity and inclusion, which is your domain. But to start, what is your definition of open science, Gunil? Well, actually, um, um, it's, it's, it's an easy question because uh, I think that open science is only open when it's really open for all of us and for every student and every teacher at uh, Utrecht University. So it's inherently uh, uh, related to each other. So it and must be inclusive as well. It must be inclusive, otherwise you're not pursuing open science. And now my second question, what's your definition of inclusion? Well, my definition on inclusion is that we are creating an environment in which we create possibilities uh, on equity uh, for all our students and all our teachers and research staff and, 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 and all other colleagues at the Utrecht University. And that means that we are organized in such a way that uh, we look really at the values of persons, not only um, on uh, just the CV itself, but also who is in front of us, how can we see the added value of different colleagues that we uh, and, and students that we have in our uh, university. But that sounds pretty logical to me. Why do we need to, you know, put emphasis on it? Is it just not naturally so? Well, unfortunately, and I'm not telling you any uh, secret, I think, and... Uh, well, uh, lots of research and lots of evidence and lots of numbers shows that sometimes it can be difficult that if you, yeah, if you if you're first in generation, uh, first in family who goes to university, that you have uh, additional uh, challenges to overcome and uh, how things work and how things are being done. Uh, these are uh, additional challenges. If you have a family in which you cannot be supported to talk about uh, how you write a, a motivation letter or how you write a thesis, um, these are all privileges that some of us can have. And that is an added value. And that's great for all those people that can have that. But if you are from a family in which that's not possible, then you have to overcome that yourself. So these people might have an other type of CV than when you have a, a situation that you um, can have some additional advantages, some privileges that can help to build your CV better. And sometimes we compare these CVs with each other and maybe it's not uh, fair to uh, compare these, dif uh, these different CVs from uh, uh, scientists and students and colleagues. Yeah. And if you link this to equity, then there's, I think, basically two ways to go around this. One of them would be to give students or colleagues who don't have that support net additional support from the university or from colleagues. And the other would be to negate or look over certain aspects that some groups are privileged in and make sure that you get a level playing field. Which one of the two do you think is most applicable to the situation? 
Well, actually, a, a little bit of both, I, I uh, think. But still, I mean, it's maybe also important to, to mention that um, although maybe it's not always uh, very uh, visible on, uh, for instance, CVs of, of, of first-in-family students, uh, but they bring additional values, they bring resilience, they bring other aspects that maybe it's not on the CV. So we have to teach our students as well that these are important skills and values that they can bring to the table as well. So um, I think it's a little bit of both, uh, Siko. Yeah. And so the one of the developments, for example, in the rewards and recognition uh, area is that we're going to be working with narrative CVs more often when people apply for funding or positions, etc. Uh, do you think this this gives you a, a greater opportunity to reach this uh, level of equity or do you think it's uh, uh, just for the bühne? Wow, um, I think it can help. Uh, narrative CVs can help, but still, if these things are all new for you, if you don't have anyone around in uh, with, with whom you can have the discussion and um, um, yeah, to, to talk it through, and therefore I think that the teachers, mentors, role models uh, in our university can have a uh, even more added value. I think it's 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 more important that um, uh, the teaching staff, the faculty staff, should realize that they can have an important role in in, in students' life, and uh, that they can be the guide to some of our, uh, some of our students. So if you have want to have an even if a normal CV or narrative CV, it's good to have if you have a mentor. In, with whom you can talk this uh, about. And I think that it's more helpful than just uh, having either one of the CVs. So, I mean, you talk about the mentorship, and I would like to come back to mentorship a bit later in our conversation. But for a moment, I want to go back to your statement before that you said that diversity actually brings new qualities to the system, like resilience. Can you open it up a little bit? Now, maybe I should go back and say like, okay, it's important to have this diversity perspectives on the table because it's, first of all, for social justice. I mean, I think we need to be aware that everyone who is eligible for university should also be have the possibility to come and study at, uh, at our university and to have these equal opportunities throughout the education and not have disadvantages through the system that we created uh, to a certain extent. But uh, uh, in addition to that, and, and that's, that's, that's it's equal important, is that they bring these different perspectives for research or science in general. And um, yeah, I think that if you come from a family which, in which you are first in family, in which you have little or no privileges, that you must be strong and you must be resilient. You, you must really want to pursue the scientific career. And um, so in general, and uh, I think, that the, yeah, these are very smart, resilient students who join our university. So, I mean, this idea of openness and university serving the society in the sense that you reflect on the needs of the society, that's also something that comes to open science. How we choose our questions and uh, how we allow people to address the questions. And again, this sounds very natural, but of course the defendants of the status quo say that, oh, this is already happening all the time. You know, everybody can come to the university, everybody can contribute to the science, but there are standards. 
and they should fulfill them. We should not sacrifice the standards or lower standards. Uh, and that's why this car- culture prevails. You know, you, you mentioned the CV recommendation is another example of it. And, you know, the defendants of the, the old school defenders of science, you say, yeah, if I see a good student as a, you know, as an experienced researcher, world famous researchers, uh, I recognize that. So my recommendation is very important. And with the other sort of ways of bringing less importance on recommendations and CVs, we are actually countering that argument that, you know, science as a, as a group of very intelligent people can self-correct. What is going miss, Gunnel? Why do you <laughs> think they are wrong and we need to actually correct from outside by these special programs like diversity of inclusion or open science? Well, you know, there are a couple of things going. Like, we need to address the numbers. We need a certain amount of uh, the numbers representing the uh, society of the Netherlands. But in addition, we we do not only look at the numbers, but also look beyond the numbers and, and see how, what is going on in the organization. And in addition, uh, so we need to be also more diversely responsive because our leaders are homogeneous and we need to learn to listen more to the experiences of uh, bias that that students or colleagues have, and um, uh, so to become more diversity responsive as a university and as an organization. But also, we need to educate ourselves and our students on the uh, added value of diversity for research. And I think that if we do this, this is a triangle: huh? addressing the numbers, addressing the knowledge, and addressing the institution. This is uh, has a has effect on each other. So it will increase uh, uh, the numbers, it will increase the knowledge, it will increase the diversity sensitive uh, organization. And thinking that uh, increasing diversity of of paying attention to it will lower the uh, level is really nonsense. I think. You will not receive, a, a, I mean, I'm not talking about the learning outcomes or, 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 or whatever, but there are, we have, a, we have a curriculum and we have a hidden curriculum, which is important how uh, socialization of our students, ha- students happen and how the professional identity formation of students occurs. And everything, uh, what I mentioned, has influence on uh, the, the teachers, the, the curriculum, the, uh, the, what we teach in our books to the students uh, will influence the students' experience and how they will grow as a scientist in the future. And if I may mention, for instance, at the Graduate School of Life Sciences, we uh, have yearly 500 uh, new uh, master students starting one of the master's program. And 20% of them is an international student. And if I talk to international students, they tell me that they sometimes felt disadvantaged compared to the Dutch students because they, uh, uh, and this is already uh, students from Belgium, let alone, let alone from India or, or somewhere else or China. They say like at the laboratory uh, where they do research, Dutch students in general are more uh, assertive, are more there to question the uh, things that the professor mentions or the other PIs mentions. And they say like, yeah, we are not being educated or, or raised in, 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 in to say to the professors like, oh, I don't agree. Uh, but the professors, if we ask them, they say, this is a good student. In general, Dutch uh, professor or Dutch researcher says like, this is a good mm-hmm. student because he or she 
it's really uh, has their own ideas and comes with another paper showing differently and we value that but the student from China will never mention this and they say like we felt like within this hidden curriculum that we are uh, uh, we will have lower grades based on these aspects that that uh, is present in our culture I really like this concept of the hidden curriculum because it it it's just it's sort of it sounds like something you can discover uh, and maybe you can give us one or two more examples of this this hidden curriculum where where we find the, these implicit biases in uh, in our education more than uh, well, in the lab um yeah, everywhere how we how, yeah it's 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 already <laughs> um well i did focus group uh, meetings with students um for 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 altogether for more than 40 students uh, and and they are very either from biomedical sciences students or from uh, 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 students of medicine. And one of the things that uh, they uh, mention is it's that it already starts at the beginning of uh, their education during our introduction uh, time. And uh, some of us have really no idea how the do's and the don'ts are. And they think it's it's very important to be part of these parties and uh, uh, having these drinks and it's actually not only students having a migration background, it's also uh, students from uh, wherever, just uh, from the Netherlands. And um, some therefore decide not to come at all uh, to, because they are too scared and too afraid of these introduction time at the start of our uh, educational program. And, and therefore already are in a disadvantage because they miss these two-week introduction uh, but because they are too scared. Yeah. Um, yeah. They feel certain reluctance to go there because there might be a question on why are you not drinking with us or don't you like parties, don't you like people, even though those things can be very exactly. unrelated. And therefore at the Faculty of Medicine, we really investigated this introduction program and we made additional changes. We made programs next to each other. If you would like to go to the party, it's of course okay and have fun. And if you would like to meet other students, for instance, we also have a theater side, a game side, and we would like to announce it really like it's for everyone. And, and uh, please come and join and get to know new fellow students because these are their fellow networks. And the thing is that they mentioned that already in the introduction time, uh, friendships are made for the rest of the time, also in working groups during the lessons, having their thesis uh, done. And if you miss that from the beginning, you are two points behind it. This is very interesting because you, you are investigating actually the experience of the student uh, and all through out the whole experience you see where these sort of barriers are and try to fix it and of course it has been going on for five ten years also with the discussion around open science and again this has always been uh, an issue that it became you know a chicken and egg that yeah people don't accept it because the the system is not in place and the system doesn't come in place because people don't accept it so Gunnel, do you have an advice for the people who would like to op bring open science from your experience on diversity of inclusion among the students, how to make this culture change go faster and also become part of the structure? Yeah, I think that we all should realize that the diversity perspectives are really important for our research. 
So that alone is reason enough to go faster for this change because science and society needs these diversity perspectives and open sciences need this as well. Students need to learn why are they doing this research, for who are they doing this research and did I incorporate all the different uh, uh, aspects in our research. And there are loads of examples in which we forgot to to put these different uh, perspectives in our research design that uh, we... uh, yeah, that, that's just present. And in health sciences, there are loads of uh, examples on this, but also just in general science. I mean, I read an article that the first examples of self-driving cars didn't recognize black people because they forgot to incorporate that in a, in this modeling uh, system. Uh, you probably know more about it than uh, I as on But so uh, because they just forgot and not because they were discriminating, which they, there was no one mentioning this. And I can go on with lots of examples uh, the first soap dispenser didn't recognize black hands because they didn't think about it. Or Nutritia developed early life nutrition 15 years ago uh, in which they forgot that they had enzymes div- uh, arrived from uh, pigs and then throughout the world, some regions in the world where Muslim people are living were not buying it because it came and they had a loss, great loss on, on money because they forgot uh, this part. Uh, so really for scientific purposes to get the science better uh, at place uh, for, 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 for better health uh, sciences and profession, we need diversity perspectives in all aspects. Yeah, so the world is diverse. So if the scientists and researchers working on problems of the world are not diverse, they will not think of the problems of a diverse world. That's actually very logical. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but it comes back to my first question. I mean, it actually sounds very logical. And I would say, yeah, of course, smart people should should know this better. And it should have been always like this. Maybe I can ask you what specific, you know, if you are now head of the university or are given, you know, the head of the culture change program at the university and say tomorrow do three actions so that we go faster uh, in opening up. What, what where do would you touch? Well, first of all, I think that all of us uh, should train ourselves to to know where our blind spots are. We all have them. I think most people at Utrecht University and Utrecht Medical Center are really great people. And if we have this conversation, many of them say like, oh, I've never thought about this. And there's really many uh, colleagues that, that have uh, unconscious biases. And we need to train ourselves, discuss with each other, and uh, really, as educators, leaders, educational leaderships should discuss like, OK, in your education, have you considered diversity and open science aspects in it? So I don't think that we need to have separate modules on it per se. But I think that in every course that you teach, you should think about like, did I incorporate the diversity perspectives, society perspectives, open science perspectives? I think it's important in every course that we teach uh, at our Utrecht University. And in addition to that, if you really want to have an inclusive curriculum, you will also check your material. Did I bring other uh, uh, perspectives, uh, literature in it to it as well? And, and uh, Yeah, maybe... Uh... I think it was one and a half or two years ago that a, a former colleague gave me a book by uh, this great writer. It was a science writer, Angela Saini. And uh, today, her book is about 
actually the, the field I was taught in, like psychology and, and life sciences. And there are these great examples in the book about how science treats women and also sci women in science are treated. And it never really occurred to me, but for example, a course that I had called evolutionary psychology, uh, like years ago, this must be 10 years ago, it was like it was written all by men. And if you if you then look at the book again, so I took it out of my uh, I'm off my bookshelf. I read it. It's like, holy Christ! There is clearly not a diverse perspective. And I thought like my my field of study doesn't have this problem, but it turns out it really does. And what do you think? Will you find this everywhere? Yes, you find this everywhere because there are uh, some uh, scientists in life sciences. Uh, female scientists who analyze, analyzed over 30,000 papers. And they analyze when there is uh, uh, the first or the last author, the two most important uh, spots on a uh, uh, paper, are female. Then in the research design, female mice, female cell lines, female uh, human beings are considered significantly more than when there are only male authors or when the first or last important places on the literature are uh, male. So this means, and when there are female scientists involved, they think, hey, wait a second, did we took this into account or not? So this is really important to have this different uh, scientists in your team. Yeah, actually, it reminds me of the research of uh, Wim Ote, which actually investigated also all these papers in terms of statistical significance, how reliable the results are. And he actually also found out that when you have the first and the last author female, you get much higher statistical significance compared to the rest of the combinations. So the quality actually increases <laughs> at the same time that the design is better. Yes. So uh, I don't want anyone to say that we shouldn't talk about diversity because the excellence is the most important. So this is an approval, Shanda. Absolutely. But I still, I didn't get my answer, you know, because we know this, right? People are smart. They know it. And there is still resistance. And for many years, the change is not happening. So wouldn't you say that there is already something in the structure that we have set up that even with the best intention, you do not get the desired outcome? I would like to quote uh, Paola Gori Georgi from uh, Fry University that says, you know, you cannot just get a king and then put a leadership <laughs> course for the king and expect a democracy. Does it really work like that? Or do you really need to also change the structure? Of course, we need to change the structure. But as I mentioned before, I think we have to work on three aspects at the same time. We need an mm -hmm. integral approach to our diversity and inclusion policy. And that's one of them. We need to address the numbers. We need to be aware, do we have a diverse team? And then in addition to it, work on the institution, eh? on the structure, as you mentioned, Shanda. Have these conversations. Be open for experiences of sci uh, bias of your colleagues, of your students. Be open it and, and tell them, like, whenever you uh, experience something like a bias, come and tell her. If you're director of education, if you're a group leader, uh, uh, talk about this. Because when I talk to students, also to PhD students, they say, like, mm, actually, I don't know whether my supervisor or my promoter is open to this. I don't know whether I can go to him or her to talk about this. So... Uh, show that you're open to this and at the same time tell we have to really uh, uh, Sean, as you just mentioned the paper and I mentioned the paper and there are many of these papers that it has an added value We and we have to 
write about it and we have to uh, uh, incorporate it in our teaching because all of us educate future scientists so we have to educate it already in the bachelor and in the master so um, then the future scientists can have this in their minds uh, in their experimental designs. So let's talk about education. This is a nice uh, segue into it because uh, just for full openness to everybody, I actually taught a couple of uh, lessons in a course that you organized, uh, Gunul. And uh, there was a, a larger course of like 20 weeks. It was all about life science and society. And you also, uh, you touched upon the subject of open science and diversity there as well. Could you explain a little bit to our listeners what, what type of course this is? Yes, I'd love to. Yeah, this is, uh, we are really proud of this uh, uh, new course. It's a course of six months. It's actually a sort of a mini program in a two-year curriculum of Masters uh, uh, of the Graduate School of Life Sciences. And uh, uh, actually students, uh, uh, first of all, get a uh, capstone project from an external party like, for instance, RIVM, the National uh, Public uh, Institution for Health and uh, uh, Environment. And they get an assignment to investigate a certain topic like uh, this year it was on food challenge uh, of food safety, but also on an advi advisory report for the RIVM on initiating a, uh, a genomic center. And the students uh, throughout these six months have these different modules. They are educated by uh, interdisciplinary scientists on the history of science, on the ethical aspects of science, on the new promise of science, the open science, but also the diversity perspectives. And all these things that they learn, they have to in incorporate in the capstone project assignments of, for instance, this RVM uh, uh, research project. And uh, talking with these external parties, these researchers, they... Uh, are really happy with this new uh, way of looking to uh, research and science. But that's really, all of them mentioned to us that that's a new, the future of science is, taking into this aspect into account as well in doing research, not looking at it from just one perspective, but because science and society are really correlated with each other. It's, 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 you can't see science as a separate thing. It, we, yeah, the society influences sciences, how we make our choices, Etc. Etc. Yeah. So the hidden curriculum, you're actually making it visible in this uh, half year. That's we. That's what we hope. <laughs> oh, that's a very nice summary. But uh, I mean, coming back, this can be also a very good example for how to open science work. Can we summarize and come back to this triangle that you mentioned and see what would be the the equivalent of this for open science? So you need. Uh, let's say numbers, which means that you know you have a certain amount of open open science activities or open access publications. That's a number. That's your indicators of the health. You need a systematic uh, capacity for this. Am I right? So that's your third. And what would be? Uh, sorry, that's the second. And what's the third? Yes, I always say like you have to address the numbers. You have to address the institution, and you have to address the knowledge. Address the and knowledge. Okay. Yeah. The teaching and the curriculum that you say, exactly. And, and open science, I see that the institution being touched quite, uh, at least in Utrecht, quite uh, heavily. So there's a lot of activity going on in terms of making this. Numbers have been monitored also by our library for quite some time. But do you think it has been incorporated enough in the teaching? Do the students get enough of open science? 
I think we can do much better. And uh, as Siko said, like uh, we just designed a course of six months in which we incorporated this. And the good thing is that re students really, really appreciate this. As some of our students uh, mentioned, like, I actually thought maybe leaving the academia because of this competition, because of how, uh, in their view, as far as they have been taught so far, uh, science is organized. And after this, uh, especially open science module, they, see, they really thought like, oh, I never thought about science in this way. I didn't know for uh, collaboration, teamwork and, and, and how you value science. And some of them actually said like, oh, I, now after this course, I still think to go on within academia. So it's really important that we teach this and not only just in our in, in, in our education, but I think it should be taught everywhere. And uh, yeah, we have we're having this conversation with Siko and Luke, uh, of course, to have more courses in uh, in, in several uh, education programs. Yeah, there's also an, an other podcast that comes out of the Graduate School of Life Sciences called Radio Life Sciences, where they specially feature uh, this course. And I think also one of the students is in there. I really like listening to that podcast, of course, because they are very enthusiastic. She she could she could explain it better than me why it is important for them. I couldn't agree with you more, uh, Siko. <laughs> Maybe I have one, one other, I mean, because we covered the topic of diversity and I would like to we started with inclusion we went to diversity and we went to the institutional capacity but I would like to come back to the inclusion so how how can the institute and the change become more inclusive do you think this can be something that can be the de designed in the uh, you know strategy rooms or the process itself should it also open up to be more inclusive I think uh, both of them. I think that as educators, we should look at our organization and how we are structured and organized. And as I mentioned, it starts already with the introduction. Uh, how truly open and inclusive are we for all of us? Or are we doing the same thing already for 20 years? Or maybe the time has changed, society has changed, and do we adapt it to society? And do we still want to run our education as, as 20 years ago? And I think we can, uh, students tell us that they would like to recognize themselves as well uh, in the in the textbook. It's, it's not always uh, Meneer Janssen going to the doctor, and it's not always the homosexual student, student having uh, HIV and they say like I can have a flu as well or other diseases and and uh, we can be a little bit mm -hmm. more careful in uh, uh, in the cases uh, be less stereotyping yeah. in these materials. Sandy, I also think we should address the elephant in the open science room, right? Because mm -hmm. uh, on the road to open science, one one encounters many males and uh, fewer females. And I'm wondering whether, uh, Gunnar, for you, this is something you recognize to start and maybe you have an idea about a possible cause and a solution. Well, I think it's really easy because if you look at awareness and selection, whether it's about students or whether it is about uh, um, selecting new colleagues, we unconsciously select people that either how they look or how, the, how they behave and how they are, have their personality uh, looks like ourselves. So you have to change that mindset and really actively think like, okay, maybe we need in this team an other uh, perspective or an other team member than what we already have. So uh, I always say like, choose someone who's not looking like yourself. And uh, when you have the selection team, please... Uh, be aware that your selection team 
uh, is diverse in itself. Otherwise, you will not have this diverse team in the future. So maybe we can just close up with something you would like to share with us, Kunul. Do you have a you know, favorite conversation opener? In the Netherlands, everybody talks about weather, but at some point it becomes very boring. Now everybody talks about vaccines. That's also getting boring. But do you have a nice conversation opener that you would like to share? Yeah, how are you doing is actually, I'm very boring and very nerdy in that sense. So <laughs> I would say uh, I always start my uh, meetings with, uh, how are you doing, guys? So, but be open for everyone. Create a safe environment. That's actually, if I truly want to give an advice is uh, students tell me a lot. When I have this conversation and I have also worked together with colleagues and then the, the, the biggest compliment that I get from colleagues in focus group meetings and, and, and when we investigate what students experiences, then my colleagues mention that they tell quite a lot. The students, they, they really tell very detailed and sometimes really difficult things that they experience. And I, th I believe if, if you listen truly to them and if you create an open and safe uh, conversation, that students are willing to share their uh, experiences and then we can grow and learn from that. So uh, listen to them. That's a perfect tagline. Thank you. Thank you yeah. very much, Gunnar. Thank you. You've been listening to the Road to Open Science podcasts. The Road to Open Science is an initiative from the Utrecht Young Academy and supported by the Open Science Platform at Utrecht University. This episode was edited by me, Lieven Heremans. Please subscribe to the podcast feed to stay up to date.